My name is Mario Hornbacher. I am an author and uh, professor of uh, writing and journalism, and I am in long-term recovery from substance and other addictions. This is Rebellion Dogs. Yep, this is Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at addiction, recovery, and today, creativity. This is episode 59. Yes, it features New York Times bestselling author Maria Hornbacker, five books, 20 languages, award-winning. She's got two more books uh, coming out soon, a work of literary journalism on science and the mind, and a collection of essays. They're with the publisher. They're contemplating which will be book number six and which will be book number seven. And, geez, I know, but there's an and. Two more already being courted, or maybe the contract's been inked. I don't know. The New York Times wrote of her second memoir, Madness. Hornbacker is a virtuoso writer. That's good, because as you're about to see, uh, I drew her into a conversation about music, which is a natural go-to for comparative purposes for me. And we're going to drop you right into a conversation, our conversation, with Maria Hornbacker somewhere mid-sentence in about 60 seconds. Maria and I wrapped up a five-series workshop on emotional sobriety with Dr. Alan Berger and John R. from the Verde Valley, Arizona Freethinkers Living Sober Group. That was great. Through that work... Uh, this inspired me to uh, book more time with Maria to talk about chaos and order and crisis management in recovery from alcoholism and other process addiction. Warning, uh, we're off topic most of the time. So this hour or so, if you love addiction, madness, recovery, the creative process, turn your ringer off and dig in or do this in bite-sized uh, pieces. Uh, you can listen any way you like. This shows for you and your enjoyment. Use it as you see fit. Just as a lead-in, because I hit record and realized that we had some really good stuff long before we got on topic, if we ever did get on topic, I'm going to add you into the conversation where we're talking about the creative process. In fact, I bring up musician-producer Gordy Johnson from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and Windsor. He moved to Toronto to form Big Sugar, and then he moved to Austin and formed a band called Grady and Sit Down Servant. Gordy Johnson can also be found in liner notes and on concert bills as producer and numerous road and studio credits with Molly Johnson. Johnny Lang, Wide Mouth Mason, Glorious Sons, Taj Mahal, the list goes on, the beat goes on. Anyway, the point of the Gordy Johnson reference came up when discussing sort of paying our dues and the classic lone wolf creed of being collaborative, but always creative on one's own terms for one's own reasons. And now, welcome to a conversation already in progress. I don't know if you know of a guy named Gordy Johnson. He had a band called Big Sugar, a oh, Canadian band, but it had some international acclaim. Mm -hmm. 
he's a great storyteller. Uh, he was a big fan of Rush because he was a Toronto boy, right? And uh, at the time uh, he was early to the studio and Rush was still there. And Alex Lyson gave him this double neck Gibson, right? And he talks about it like it's Excalibur, right? <laughs> Said you could really use this. And he's just like, I could. I absolutely could. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and and um, yeah, because he, he was still paying for his guitars back then. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you pay attention to those things. He keeps creating these musical acts. Yeah. And then moving away from them like he creates a buzz like he just didn't want to be a parody of himself. He didn't want to be his own cover band playing his own shit exactly you know, day in exactly. day out he refused to do that exactly. and so he moved to uh austin texas because it's a great music town and i said come on you know aren't you at all patriotic toronto's a great music town and he said no <laughs> toronto's a music business town Ooh. where people showcase to industry a bunch yeah. of people with their arms crossed right right and uh, and he said uh, austin uh, people show boat because <laughs> they're playing that. music fans. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's a real truth to that. I mean, the kind of like where you are and where you're working as a creator. I mean, that's been way more interesting to me as I've as I've tried to move away from the town where I feel most kind of comfortable and have kept moving back. You know, there's towns that are innately kind of creative, and it's always like new stuff is always happening there. It's one of the reasons I never moved to New York. Like, yeah, you worked in New York, though, didn't you? Uh -uh. No, nope. I have. I mean, technically, I work in New York. My publisher is in New York. Yeah. Uh, my agent is in New York, uh, but I don't ever have to show up there. I just send a book. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, I go and every time. I mean, the nice thing about being about not having a book out uh, right now is that nobody's demanding that I kind of go you know, basically shell the book and yeah. that's it's fine. I don't mind doing it actually at this point. I, I don't love it. It's exhausting to her, but, um, but it's also not really about the book at that point. Like at that point, you've, you've long since moved on to the next book because it takes nine months from delivery to production to get the damn thing out. So yeah. nine months later, you're already into a new book uh, or a new yeah. project. And so I took, I've taken a long hiatus between, a long hiatus between books for a variety of reasons. One of which is that it's so easy to get off the writing process when you're selling a book. I'm not good at selling. I don't care that I'm not good at selling writers, young writers, especially today, or new writers, whatever, um, are very into like getting a following. And I'm like, you have a following. And then you, if you have not created any content, I don't care if you're creating content. Did you write a decent book? Like it's a book. It's not content. It's literature. It's ideas. Content, all the buzzwords we're using for what we sell, you know, artistically now, I'm like, I'm done with it. You know, when I have content, send me home. Next time I write a book, we'll talk. You know what I mean? It's a different yeah. deal. As much of a beginner's mind as I can bring to the whole wow. indie publishing and self-publishing. I mean, it's moved from the vanity press where people immediately roll their eyes because right. some big name authors have gone there just because right. they want to get paid five bucks a book, not 80 cents a book, right? You know, 100%. and they've already got, they know who's going to buy their book. 
right. they're already on their mailing list, right? Right. right. So. Uh, they, they don't need, they need to hire a designer, they need to hire a publicist, they need to hire a layout person, right. uh, but they, they can do that for under 10 grand. Yeah. And uh, what do they need the publishing house for? Yep, yep, absolutely. But you have to be a, a more a whole person in terms of, you know, do the businessy stuff and right. you know all of the self-promotion stuff and all of that sort of thing yeah i went through this cycle with music punk rock was the first do-it-yourself because yeah. nobody wanted to press their records right we're not interested in that nothing succeeds like success we're going to milk right. this this uh uh big hair rock thing as far as we can yeah. and uh these artists just we're, we're sick of it because it was a big money-making thing and yeah. they had a certain amount of integrity and a certain amount of just youthful fuck you to it yeah, right absolutely but they were pressing their own records and uh you know they couldn't get gigs in the regular clubs because uh you know they were all cover bands in there and uh, so they would rent a hall and uh, get a beer license or not yeah. And invite, you know, the New York dolls from New York or yeah. uh, the Clash or something. And, and they would open for them in their hometown, Vancouver or Toronto yeah. or wherever. D DOA, you know, they wrote Disco Sucks. Yeah. They were playing in the late 70s, which was sort of the birth of of new wave and then that yes. sort of whole yeah. punk scene. Yep. And so, and then it was, oh, you know, you were nobody if you didn't have a record deal. And yeah. then there was this idea that uh, a record deal can be death to an artist. Yep. You get signed yep. to a, a small label that gets bought up by another label because they want Shania Twain, not you. Right, right. You, you get uh, mothballed. And uh, they only wanted the one artist and they paid billion jillion dollars for it. You can't buy your rights back. You've right. got an album that's made that you're not allowed to tour. Yep. Because yep. you're stealing the label's music. Exactly. <laughs> you know? It's an unbelievable setup in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's crazy. Some people are good at all of that stuff, mm -hmm. but I, I, I can't imagine Janis Joplin could have planned her own tour or, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix could have uh, booked a, a, a room and an engineer and, right. you yeah. know, uh, artist and all, all that stuff. Like maybe he could have. I don't know. Right. Like they, they all had entrepreneurial yeah. spirit, but um, let the experts do their one niche yeah. thing. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I feel, you know, I've got students now who are um, trying to decide, you know, should I self-publish and everything like that? And I have I have no real knowledge base about independent publishing, but it is nice to be able to see students have that option if they don't want to go through what is fundamentally a waiting game for most folks in the publishing industries, in the mainstream houses, which are now doing exactly what record labels were doing, which is buying up all the small houses and devouring them and and backlisting all the really interesting books. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't I don't like seeing that happen. Um, so indie publishing is doing very much what you're saying about independent record production in the 70s and 80s. You know, it's a really it's a good time for that. That said, 
the the gatekeeping function of mainstream publishing was real. Um, it wasn't its own only function, and it wasn't its best skill. But the fact that there is an extraordinary glut of crappy writing out there right now uh, bums me out. It does uh, not because it's like harming anyone, but because I think for two reasons: the overall quality of the conversation about writing drops um, when everybody's like, "I need a book to sell for my product." And I'm like, then sell your product and call your book one of your products, but don't call it necessarily a book. You know what I mean? Like it's, I just feel like as I'm teaching, as I'm trying to teach students about what to write, how to write what they have to say, why to write it, you know, the idea of sort of artistic purpose does get a little bit lost in all of that. Like, why are you doing this besides to sell it? I didn't start writing. I made a decision. So this is a bazillion years ago. I was living actually not even far from where I am right now. Uh, I was living in a completely unsafe crack house apartment in downtown Minneapolis. I was 19, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. So it was like 30 years ago, almost at 19. So I got sober when I was 26. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, so I was 19. It was kind of the getting to be the fever pitch of um, getting to be the fever pitch of me kind of going downhill. I was probably yes. still on my way up and on my way about to be on my way down. Uh, Cause you know, the last five years are always pretty brutal. Uh, but so while I was living in this little crack house apartment, I was writing for magazines, freelance, doing freelance theater journalism and art journalism, teaching college, going to school, trying to live on, you know, grants and get my rent paid and working at McDonald's and Baskin Robbins book. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't actually recall that I slept ever, but I do remember thinking to myself, my God, this is a lot of freaking work to be able to write poetry. There's a lot of work to, to feed that habit. And then I went, I'll keep doing it. You know, yeah. is it worth it? I remember having that conversation with myself being like, is it worth it to me to do almost any job as long as I have my nights to work on writing? And I like, there wasn't even a debate. I wasn't like, hmm, I'll think about that. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, pumping gas in Jersey, fine, good. That's awesome. You know, you know, making fries like I was doing right then, scooping ice cream, making coffee, all good is fine. And that, that I have not had to do that all the time through my career is luck almost entirely. That I got to have that conversation in an era when I didn't have to think about, is it worth, I didn't have to think about selling out. I didn't have to think about, do I want to book my tours? All I really wanted to do was write a goddamn decent poem. Yeah. And that, Joe, is what I still want to do. Yeah. That remains my goal. And I still can barely pay my goddamn rent, you know? And people will look at that and they'll call it sacrifice and they'll call it discipline. Is it that or is it compulsion? I don't think it's compulsion because you and I both know what compulsion feels like. Yeah. Um, that feels really, any, you know, it's no more a compulsion than staying sober is a compulsion. It's like the opposite in some ways. The negative image of it, you know, positive, negative, like in a, in a photo, right. those old photos, like if you flip compulsion and uh, take its negative space, you may have discipline. That may be what it is. And so if you think about like, uh, you know, every character defect probably has its asset to it. There is a dedication uh, that is not purely primal that can be tapped in any addict, I think. Um, in the same way, it is not a compulsion that I sit down on my stupid meditation cushion every morning. I'm like, there's a lot of days when I'm like, really? again with the sitting quietly, you know what I mean? Like, but I also do it because it allows me to do all the other things I kind of want to be doing that day more intelligently.
Um, and when I don't do it, I do a lot of things unintelligently. You know what I mean? So like, I mean, that's a, that's a Pavlovian sort of thing. If what I'm getting from meditating is greater clarity as a writer and as a person and um, a better sense of detached care, detached compassion. If I'm getting the things that I didn't have now because I'm doing this one thing, maybe a couple of things, a handful mm -hmm. of things, that's Pavlovian. I want more detached compassion. I want more deep friendships. I want more showing up when I say I'm going to show up. All the things that I didn't have when I was using because everything was compulsive. Yeah. Canceling was compulsive. You know, showing up late for work was compulsive. Being drunk was compulsive. All of that. And I do think that the flip, the mirror image of that, let's call it, is probably an ability to make a decision made a decision, you know, like so much of what we do in sobriety is just, I made a decision and I kept making it every day. Is the difference a matter of uh, like impulse versus mindful? You've made a decision, you've made a commitment, uh, you're driven by it, as opposed to you just are responding to your lizard brain. Um, yeah, I think my lizard brain has no good ideas almost ever, right? You know, I mean, like it never <laughs> plan. And I have learned to really deeply distrust my lizard brain. And I would say maybe the last 10 years of sobriety have been pretty deeply involved in figuring out the difference between my all self-preservatory lizard brain and my gut instinct. So like somewhere in there, there's also a distinction, I think, because brain people, brain first people who are not leading with their heart, right? Uh, we err on that side, you know, just as I think people who lead with their heart err on the side of having a lot of feelings all the time and making feeling-based decisions, which isn't bad, mm -hmm. but it can be thoughtless, right? Let's say it's, let's say it's, I'm having a feeling, I'm going to say something thoughtless because I was feeling this way, right? In the same way, I can think my way to a really great plan and take and take no account of how is this going to feel to me, you know, or other people. How is the feeling life going to be affected by this? So, going through so much of my early life in um, lizard brain reactive feeling states, right? Uh, I think in some in some ways I overcorrected in my early say first ten years of my sobriety. Mm -hmm. I mean, corrected and been like brain first all the time all decisions have to be weighed out analyzed making a flow chart you know i'm gonna have a graph somebody get me a spreadsheet whatever um no and that actually led me to ignoring sometimes insights that i would have had had i listened to my gut you know instincts in some ways and so like that's a balance how much of that is being pushed there by sort of the the masculinity of recovery like you know that sort of order is the solution to chaos type of thing a lot you know in answer to your question, how much of that a lot and that doesn't mean so like masculine feminine you know terms you know just defining our terms as a person i probably have more masculine traits as a thinker than feminine right i i like order you know the whole myers-briggs i'm uh i'm in introvert i'm a thinking feel what is it i and i introvert t something with j like i'm almost all let's call it masculine uh mm -hmm. as a thinker i have never met more emotionally driven people anywhere in my life than in aa and they are men 
mm-hmm. who insist, and this is not even about um, AA. This is about people who've been told, well, be logical, don't have feelings, who then when they're in an emotionally complex situation, can't navigate it because they are so acutely zero to 60 emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I'm over here being think, 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 let's process this in a, in a rational fashion. And they're like, but you're denying my feelings. And I'm like, you're a four-year-old right now. You know what I mean? Like you're having a lot of fucking feelings, excuse me, but like, I'm not going to hang while you tantrum at me, you know? So like that communicative style that I think, um, recovery communities can cultivate is a problem. I think for a lot of people, I don't find a lot of people in AA who are, who are logical to a fault. Right. Um, I do find a lot of people who have not yet made a decision, let's say, and learned the tools of balancing reason and emotion, balancing logic and feeling, finding a way to navigate between their head and their heart, right? Like, which are, of course, not detached from one another, nor are either detached from the body itself. But because I am raised female-bodied in this culture, right, it is easy to pinpoint someone like me. So if I go into a room full of men, right, in AA, and I say something they don't like, it is almost always routed back to she's seeing something I don't like because she's a crazy woman. And then what happens is I'm sitting quietly reading my book and these guys are legitimately losing their minds at me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not clear on how I'm the crazy one here while you are arguing with me about the fact that I sat in your chair. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know it was your chair and you are legitimately about to be in tears. And they're like, you crazy girls, like you walk in here, like thinking you own the place. I'm like, we're debating a chair in a church basement. Where's the crazy? Because it isn't in me right now. You know what I mean? So like, I do feel like the culture within the recovery community can support people not doing some types of work. That's true of women too, you know, but it can really, I think, facilitate us maybe not examining. I said that in the meeting yesterday, not examining the stories we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the best advice or insight a writing professor or teacher ever gave you? It's not exactly advice. But when Jack Driscoll, who's a poet and a novelist and was my teacher uh, in the 80s, I turned in my first poem to him and it came back the next day, unreadable, covered with ink, read everywhere, a complete mess of editorial marks. And underneath it, it said, good poem. And what that says to me is like, first take don't happen in writing right? You know, do the work and you will have a good poem. That's always what it is. Yeah. I, um, I heard almost the same thing. He said, uh, I, I dare you to name me one good writer. And like everyone had their, you know, Hemingway or whatever. He goes, no, no. And they they go, what? No, they were great rewriters. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. Show me a good writer they don't finish a book, man. They're so, they're so quick. They just toss it off. Those are probably people who, who blog well, right? 
But those of us who want the big projects or the long form stuff or the long term stuff, the stuff that really needs to last, yeah, trying to do that is at heart a creative editor, right? Yeah. This guy was uh, the one-time editor of the Toronto Star, the Gazette. He got his start writing uh, women's romance novels under the name Mary Borden because it oh paid. Oh, my God! It yeah. paid well. Of course. Yeah, one big bills, man. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And uh, he, he said he his instructions to his wife was his uh, drawer uh, always uh, on the right side of the desk where his brilliant work cools off (laughs) he said nobody uh releases the unpublished work that gets burnt that is the only thing do whatever else you want with my corpse or my estate but that has to be destroyed yeah i throw my notebooks out I throw them out and I, you know, people, friends of mine are like, you what? And I'm like, I assure you the garbage of my thoughts on the daily is not harming anyone by its absence. Just let it go. If it makes it into print, maybe it's worth something. If not, just trust me. You know what I mean? Like, trust me. It's fine. Yesterday you spoke at uh, New York uh, Writers AA meeting, right? And wowed them. They were absolutely uh, eating out of uh, the palms of your hands. That's pretty normal. But um, (laughs) you talked about how, you know, let's not talk about like the the drinking story. Let's talk about recovery because it's so much more interesting. But in a way, because there's just as much drama, just as much misadventure, just as much rude awakening in in recovery as there was when it was that repetitive strain disorder of wake up, drink, lie, drink some more, <laughs> sleep, you know, repeat, right? Advil. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it isn't um, like, like this is something I'm wondering about. Like I'm into mindfulness now. Uh, I'm into uh, a less chaotic. Uh, I'm not setting the house on fire to avoid uh, my laundry, right? You know, and put. <laughs> yeah, and but how much of that is? just age like like when you are in your teens in recovery or you're in your 20s when the idea of serenity and peace and routine you'd rather stick needles in your eyes right 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 yeah or your arms yeah like i i'm i want i need tell me that in recovery there's still action there's adventure there's uh drama like oh god right I, i seek it out so how much of that is just age in the same way the uh, narrative of recovery was written in that sort of uh, archetypal American male sort of thing? It's also mature adult, which yeah. isn't an appropriate way for a, a young a youth to behave. Right. I think that's such a good question. So like how much of it is age? Um, I don't know. I do think that culture right now is changing in our approach to how age happens. I think my understanding when I came in at 26 was that by 47, 
I would be wearing a muumuu and curlers, you know, and I would be like an old, fusty, dried up old bag, right? That was my idea of what 47 was going to look like anyway. That seems not to have panned out, nor did I really concept, like I couldn't have conceptualized that sober life, not just sober life, but sane life. Like, cause you know, my, my history deals with, you know, a significant mental illness that I'm not dealing with now. And so I think had I uh, understood that by the time I was 47, I would be so much more capable of what feels more exciting to me now in a really more lasting way. It's sort of like, it's, it, I want to go back to the, the, like the idea of music, you know, it's sort of like the difference between stadium rock and a live, a live show in a, in a, in a coffee house with like the best musician ever, you know, yeah, there's only seven of you there, but it is the most intense artistic, maybe emotional, probably spiritual moment of your life, because there's only seven of you and it's Yo-Yo Ma, right? Yeah. That's actually, I've been there. And yeah. I've also seen Yo-Yo Ma at the Met and it's two different animals. Like, yay, wow, big crowd of people. But talking to a group of people who are talking to Yo-Yo Ma about that moment of music, you don't ever recover from that. And in the same way, in the same way, sobriety feels a lot like, you know, we had our period of life that was grand gestures and setting the house on fire every time we had a bad feeling or didn't feel like doing the laundry. That's all very good, but like, it's not sustainable. I don't even want that kind of excitement. That doesn't mean I don't want excitement. Of course I want excitement, but excitement comes from very different sources in my life now. Mm -hmm. Part of that is recovery and part of that is age for sure. However, there are a lot of people my age in recovery. And we aren't necessarily after the same things. I find I find my going in, like the conversations you and I have are always comforting to me because you do seem to be in that same space of like long range, what's here, what's deeply present in this stage of recovery. And you're, you've been sober much longer than I have, but I mean, at this age. Um, and when I talk to people who are, you know, relatively new, let's call it under 10 years sober, you, you know, the funniest thing, this is a story, Joe, and I'm mm -hmm. really so pertinent right now. I was a couple of months ago in the middle of a bad breakup, which would be a nice way to put this. And I went to a meeting, a Zoom meeting. I have my crazy atheist professors AA meeting that I go to a couple of times a week. And we read your book. We read the, that's our meditation book. So I go in on a Tuesday and we read this, uh, the reading that day. So it would have been February, maybe January, February. Um, we read this reading about how, you know, the real risk of relationships in AA, of the boy meets girl or girl meets girl or boy meets boy on AA campus, the real risk is not for the new person to go back out. It's for the person who has 21 goddamn years sober, who's like, this fucker will not get off my porch, right? Which is what was happening at the moment. I'm in this meeting and someone hears this great thump and screaming outside and I'm like, I'll just mute myself. And they're like, what's going on? I'm like, there's a dude getting his stuff off my porch right now. And they're like, is he sober? I'm like, I hope so. Cause he was yesterday, but now he's lost his mind and he's on my porch and it's 30 below zero and he won't get his shit. Right. And then I'm thinking to myself, he's been sober maybe two years, right? Like who had that bright idea, Joe? I did. So <laughs> and they're saying to me, nice reading for today. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. And I muted them all. I'm like, goodbye. So the real risk in sobriety isn't that you'll be bored. It's that you'll backslide. It's that you'll backslide. And so for me, that's the risk, not of newly sober people, but of my own shitty decision-making when I get caught up in emotional drama. 
And that's the risk for me is that that's where, that's when I lose emotional sobriety. And as I've said elsewhere, the next stop after losing emotional sobriety is the bar down the street. It's where it goes. I know that's where it goes. Or some other, uh, you know, dangerous behavior. Right. You you know, it it is doesn't necessarily like I've got a bag of tricks. It's deeper than uh, a a case of gin. Right. You know, for sure. Yeah. That's where you get into the compulsivity. You know, that stuff is like, what can I do besides deal with the minutiae of bad decisions? What can I do besides deal with the quotidian, really difficult, gray areas of relationships? whether it's intimate relationships or friendships or being in a world. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was, you know, that you, you talked about that, you know, that sober under 10 years, the, the, the early days of recovery. Right. I mean, they, they would hit us with a stick for talking oh, like that. Like, like just you pompous fucking. I know. I know. <laughs> However, maybe I then speak only for myself. Maybe yeah. it's pompous. Yeah. It's also then let's let's say this on my dating profiles, yeah. it says nobody under 45. Like that's the other thing. It's not a matter of thinking people in earlier than this long sobriety, right? It is not a matter of thinking they don't know how to do it. What about two 30-year-olds? Great. So, like, you know, go for it, right? I don't want to freaking deal with that ever. 35. <laughs> and that's millennials. Like they can run the world. That's fine. I'm not going out with them. So like the, the thing is like at a certain point, you know yourself well enough, or I hope one does, I do to be like, I will not deal well with dating someone. I have to explain that Disney references don't land with me because I have no idea what you're talking about. Like there's no need to deal with the generational gap. And there's also in sobriety. It's not that we don't need to deal with one another. We very much do. It's that the comprehension of what I want my life to be like reflects 20 years of quiet. Like it reflects a, a deep comfort with solitude too. You know, it, re- it reflects, that doesn't make me better at anything. It does mean that I'm not afraid to be alone. It doesn't, it, it means that I'm not afraid to go through really awful, difficult, painful, like grief, sober. It just means that we are, we are comfortable with different levels of discomfort, I'd say. And different levels of discomfort describes my first 30 years. Right. <laughs> okay. What point? Uh, and, you know, like a lot of the stuff was for me, again, in that sort of, uh, you know, s- stage two recovery, because stage one is just getting, staying sober. Okay. And then now what am I going to do? Right. That's sort of stage two. Right. And I was of the impression that, well, I know everything I need to know. I've done those 12 steps. Uh, I'll turn it over if it's a problem. I'll uh, find the courage to change if I have to. I, I mean, what else is there, right? Right, and, life. And I'm, yeah, and I, and I was, you know, trying to live life. Uh, you know, I, in a relationship, not happy. Like, the relationship owes me happiness, right? Like, <laughs> like that underdeveloped sort of sense of things, right? And, uh, you know, and then you can't use the I was drunk, she was drunk, it just happens. But, you know, I'm having an affair. And, and, you know, five years later, I have two children 
from two boy meets girl on AA campus. And now it doesn't look like I'm a victim, the victim of circumstances, because I'm the only character that was in both of those dramas, right? right. You know, commentary there is you, right? Yeah, exactly. And and this is this is my if you want what we have, and, and I know it's not really going to sell. <laughs> but what do I do with it, right? And then it, it's causing me so much grief. You know, I go back to the cookie jar, right? Like every everyone needs a hobby, right? I'm sober <laughs> after all. <laughs> everyone needs a hobby. I remember dating somebody who had like a huge porn problem and being like, I'm an aficionado. I'm like, great, I'm a wine collector. <laughs> like, good job on you. If you can do that in moderation, man, more power to you. I can't. <laughs> God. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I never think of those retorts until uh, I'm driving three weeks later, having the conversation for a 10th time. I will tell you, I feel that that is a self-protective mechanism your brain has, because I think of them after I've said them. Yeah. That's when I think of the retort and go, that's what I just said. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a lot of undoing that, that comes with that. Yeah. And, and when, when I say this, and when I talk about, and this all started, I wanted to uh, talk to you about the whole idea of sort of crisis management and sobriety, because when we did the emotional sobriety thing, you touched on that, how to deal with the, the highs and the lows, which we, we don't get a get out of jail free card uh, in sobriety. It's not the reward for doing the work. It's um, just having to deal with uh, grief and awe and wonder and embarrassment sober, yeah. right? That's yeah. your reward somehow. That's it. And I'll tell you in the promises, right? The part of the promises that always does ring true to me is that, well, a lot of it does, but uh, the, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to babble us. And that, that might sum up the promise of emotional sobriety in some ways. You know, it might be that right there in a nutshell is that you deal with, as you say, awe and wonder and joy and grief and loss and embarrassment and boredom in sobriety and you intuitively know how to handle it you know what i mean like that might be what we get for the work on the other hand that's a lot that's a lot it's a lot yeah it sure is right but it doesn't seem valuable when you're brand new i i just need 40 bucks to pay my dealer shut up with that stuff <laughs> i think there's there's a there's a sort of like those are the moments where you go okay i you know i'm not going to give you 40 bucks but like those those, those moments getting to work with people who are where we were, right? Where we all were and sometimes were repeatedly. Yeah. A process of like, just be with people where they are. You don't have that when you come in. Yeah. I could have been with people where they were then. I could be with me because that's where I was because I was in crisis all the time. I look back on some of those crises now and I'm like, what a piddly bunch of shit that was. Like, what did I think was the issue? And, but that, that is partly getting older. That is looking back on your like incredibly strong 17 year old body being like, what were you complaining about exactly? You know, whatever. There's also like just things that seemed huge because your life is so limited when you're in active addiction. Of course, when you're, when your whole scale only is only three notes big, right? Yeah. If you go to the high note, you're at the high note, even though you don't have the whole scale at your disposal, right? Yeah, that's right. You don't have a three octave range, right? 12, right? 
you have three notes and you hit high and now you're screwed. How do you get back down to note, you know, the low note? Now we've got complex polyphonic, you know, sort of beautiful options for tone, right? In our lives, emotional tone and experiential tone and ways of appreciating things that are very, very finely tuned. Um, that doesn't mean I appreciate them well. Doesn't mean I hit them well all the time by any stretch. What I have now is just an awareness that that kind of sound is possible. Let's call it that, right? You know, now I know there are moments where there is real beauty in the complexity and the, and sometimes, sometimes actually in the simplicity. Mm -hmm. Like chant, right? We're going to stick with the music metaphor. Like there's, there's some real beauty to those moments of not a lot happening. And um, I didn't realize that when I came in because everything was crisis and it was all get me out of crisis. And so I didn't realize coming in, it was actually a therapist who said to me early in sobriety, I was like, well, now you're out of thought. Now, you know, I've been in therapy since I was like born, basically. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years sober, whatever, almost 20 years later, a therapist said, good, now you're out of crisis. We can get some work done. I was like, hmm, what exactly have we been doing? She's like managing your incessant crises. I was like, awkward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what is exactly, if that's not what we do here in therapy, what do we do? She's like, you could grow. You could mature. <laughs> you could get comfortable with yourself. You could have periods of happiness. I don't know. I don't, what do you want to do? And I was absolutely freaking stumped. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are proactive, pro-social choices. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, as opposed to needing distraction, existential angst that you don't know what to do with. Right. Right. Answer to existential angst is either make art or hold out until it's past. You know what I mean? Like there's no, that doesn't mean it's comfortable. doesn't mean it's comfortable or easy or possible always. Um, but you just, you know, that pro-social proactive period of like, I did not have any idea how emotionally limited I really was when I had been sober a few years. I was like, what else is there? Like, how you don't know what you don't know, right? Like, how would I have known that long-term friendship feels different than the madly in love with your new best friend? You know, if I had not had 30-year and 40-year friendships, yeah, I knew that. You know, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't have known how comfortable you get in your body when you're older because you're you've been in it so damn long. You know what I mean? You're like, this is the one that I got. Leave yeah. it. You know yeah. what I mean? I wouldn't have known how much more I appreciate walking meditation than grand gestures. Because when I came into meditation, I'm like, if this motherfucking group does not move along, I'm going to die. You know, cause like walking meditation is slow and deliberate. I'm like, this is hell I'm leaving. Um, and now it's like, it's still every time I do it, like this is hell and I'm leaving, but I know how to do it now. And I can, I can get something from it and I can give something to it, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I uh, started just adding to my sort of health regimen uh, fasting, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is just intermittent fasting, like 36 hours, right? And uh, I know, you know, anyone with eating disorders, whoa, careful with that, right? You know, <laughs> someone like you, Joe, <laughs> you know, uh, but it really... Um, uh, brings you 
uh, an acute awareness of my relationship with food and why I meet, oh, I eat. Oh, uh, interviews over. What should I eat, right? Or or drink or whatever, right? You know, uh, I'm sad. You know, I'm glad. You know, all of these reasons to indulge, or I'm bored. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know that. And then when you aren't eating, and you your your mind says, "I'm starving." No, you're hungry. Right. 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 You won't be starving for two weeks. Right. Yeah. Hold up. <laughs> What it does for me is it really reminds me of those early days, right? When someone's trying to give me all the answers to AA and I just want to, you know, find the loophole, you know, just, just drink on weekends or or just do mescaline, you know, it's natural. Right. Nobody will mind. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. But, and, and then when you do it several times, you just get used to it and then, You realize, you know, I've got, you know, uh, for 36 hours, I don't even have the time it takes for thinking about food, preparing food, cleaning up after food. I I can put those to more useful things. And it's not like my energy depletes because I'm not eating. Like not for a 36 hour fast, right? Exactly. Yeah. But it's a real reminder. And that really kind of dovetails with what you were saying about mindfulness, just the kind of the process of whatever it is in your life that allows for that mindfulness to, um, to, to experiment in it. You know, if you, I, I wouldn't recommend to anybody who probably has like an active history of eating disorders, like a recent history of eating disorders, fasting, um, only because becomes, it can become a preoccupation. If not a compulsion, it can become a, if I can do 14 hours, can I do 16? If I can do 16, can I do 36? If I can do 36, what about two days? And then the body changes, um, the bodily changes, weight loss, that kind of thing that, that may be experienced. Those get too appealing, I think, yeah. for people who deal with like body dysmorphia stuff. That mm-hmm. said, those mindfulness practices, whether it's fasting or walking meditation or mindful eating or cooking like slow food, there was a whole slow food movement a few years back, like cooking things way in way more deliberate step-by-step fashion. And if you, you know, if you have an eating disorder history and want to bring mindfulness to the eating, there are a lot of ways to do that, that do exactly what you're saying about why am I eating right now? Not just the baseline, why am I eating? But as I eat, what's going on? with my body what's going on with my mind where am i where's my attention am i doing am i reading things on my phone and checking my laptop and eating oreos or am i really kind of sitting here figuring out how to get these ridiculously leafy leaves of lettuce into my face you know like there's a really different way of being with food um when you're eating food for one thing whole foods you know yeah yeah like food that is in fact grown yeah Uh, that that relationship to food gets very pleasant when you stop doing a million other things while you're eating. So, so for me, a lot of mindfulness around food and eating is about not doing other stuff while I eat. And it's about cooking my own food. Right, like eating at your computer, yep. scrolling through your phone yep. with your gooey fingers. Right, right, right. With your gooey fingers and there's schmutz all over everywhere, as my grandma would say, you know, I mean, the the mindfulness around any practice that we do or can be prone to do compulsively you can you can be mindful around intimacy you can be mindful around walking and exercise you can be mindful around food you can be mindful around 
taking a bath in the morning and being like, I'm only scrubbing my left foot right now. You know what I mean? Like slowing our lives down is meditative and does neurologically and elsewise uh, improve our relationship to ourselves and thereby to other people because we are more aware of where am I right now? I'm in this silly hotel room chatting with Joe because that's what I'm doing right now. I'm not also doing 17 other things. That allows me to be like two days from now, I'll have been here. I'll remember it. I won't be in that state of what the hell Joe and I talk about. When did I talk to Joe? You know, I'll have been here. Mm -hmm. And that, I think this is also about getting older to an extent. As I get older, I stop being like, what's the next new exciting thing I can do with my life? And more about what am I doing right now that I'm going to want to treasure later? You know, I want that deep file, that vault of experiences in my life. And I don't necessarily need them to be exciting. I do want them to be emotionally intense though. And what that takes for me is presence. Yeah, it's amazing what can be emotionally intense. You know, that exercise with eating one raisin. Just the one. Yeah. Go through this whole gamut of emotional sort of like experience after that. And you're like, I don't know why that was so intense. Well, because the rest of the time you're not being aware at all. You know what I mean? So. Uh, The pandemic. Does it suit you? Uh, Are you just waiting for it to be over? Where are you at COVID wise? Well, I've, um, so right before COVID, a few, you know, not quite a year before COVID, I lost a partner and that, uh, and that was already going on. I was already in the middle of dealing with a pretty significant, you know, grief and loss. Um, And then COVID happened. So I spent a fairly significant period of time entirely isolated. Uh, I also, has it suited me um, in ways it has, because I wanna say this isn't always true, but in some ways everything kind of suits me that is what's happening right now, yeah. right? So that goes to the sort of, it is what it is of emotional sobriety. Mm-hmm. It, you know, that doesn't mean I'm okay with it it doesn't mean I'm okay with the losses people have endured or the crisis or the injustice of how it has played out in people's lives and in cultures. I'm not okay with that. The impact on my life has been deeply destabilizing, which allows me to figure out what do I do when things are destabilized? Some really stupid shit for sure. You know, so that's information that I can then kind of parlay into how do I restabilize even when it is, even when everything around me is not the same river from one minute to the next, you know, even when I'm living in a deeply tumultuous time as we all are right now. So everything got wacky uh, for all of us, right? But because um, I had experienced a loss and because I was renting at the time, I actually left where I was living and drove all over the country because nobody was out. Uh, wow. I, wow. I know. And so because I was not putting anyone else at risk, I had no partner. I had no, I still don't, but I had no, I wasn't seeing my family. My family's quite elderly. Um, I wasn't seeing friends. They were all quarantined. So I was entirely solo. And so that actually allowed me to, I went, uh, driving to the East coast and stayed in the cabin off the grid for a while. And then I, um, drove down the East coast and stayed in the cabin down South for a bit. And then I came into the middle of the country and stayed there for a bit. And 
I got an extraordinary amount of writing done. I got um, much more deeply comfortable, I'd say in the last year with being solo than I've ever been in my life. At no time did I think, you know what I need is a bottle. Like there was no reason to, like, I was just like, this is an extraordinary surge of loneliness. What shall I do with it? And actually drinking didn't cross my mind. Uh, So it suited me insofar as no one's checking to see how culture and time and history suit me. So in that sense, here I am one speck, right? In this vast, vast, vast complex system that we're in. And so it doesn't matter whether it suited me. Did I deal with it? I dealt with it reasonably well, I think. And I learned a lot from it, a lot. And I got a lot done. All that being the case, a friend of mine refers to now as the COVID spring. I do think people are really, and I am one of these people, tipping into social life more quickly than we probably should. I don't mean germ-wise. I mean, everybody I know and everybody I physically see is vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel very blessed because of that. That said, there is a Bacchanalian uh, excess in the air, I want to say, at least where I live. Um, everybody wants to hang out all the time. Everybody wants to have a party. Everybody wants to go dancing. Everybody's having sex with everybody else. And I'm like, all this, everybody is not good for addicts. It's not good for me because I go to everybody and everything all the time real quickly. So I don't need it right now. So I was at zero, like no people, no nothing, never again. Right. And that was fine. And now I'm in this city where everybody's been very cautious and is now very hungry, I think, for social interaction, for touch, for art. I mean, I'm in an art, very art intensive city. Everybody's like, when are the theaters opening? You know, I mean, like Minneapolis, right? Everybody, the the Guthrie just announced its season and everyone loses their mind. Like that's this town. And I am part of this town and it's easy to want to go, I can go out again tonight, you know? So I'm watching myself very carefully is what I'm doing. Let's put it that way. Keep it Yeah, I'm learning things about myself. I'm more introverted than I thought I was. Yes. Because I was always in motion, one music festival to another, one conference to another, you know, all these different hats to wear, you know, it's great. I can change while I'm running down the runway to hop on the plane. For sure. For sure. And it's not like my life is a gaping hole without all of that running around. I put gas in my car tank once every two months. Used to be every two days. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, the the CO2 emissions got a lot better. Yeah. That's like we have to, I think as individuals and as a culture, uh, pay attention to what got better Yeah. Uh, while that happened. Um, and, and what got harder in some ways and was also healing. You yeah. Know, a lot of relationships, I think, blew under the stress of it. And a lot of people got okay with who they were with or not being with somebody. I think that's been a process. The meetings, I think, you know, how, you know, we've talked a bit about how, how much Zoom brings opens doors for people in recovery um and the dudes i knew up north who were like yeah i don't do zoom i'm like good luck we'll see you on the other side man like you don't do zoom you got to do it in the room you're pissed because they quit smoking inside all right you know go to go to yeah like the dinosaurs didn't do fur right right <laughs> exactly and that didn't go well for them and that's that's really exactly right it's like 
we either, if you adapt or you die, that's the fact of it. You, you adapt, that is the fundamental resilience of human beings is our adaptability. If we cannot tap it, if we cannot train it to be ever more adaptable, we'll all still have tails and we'll be tripping on them. And then, you know, Darwin is like, you guys freaking get it together. You know, I mean, like work it out. Just based on AA's own numbers, um, there's an extra 60 odd thousand AA members and and some have fallen uh, in this pandemic, right? But more more have found recovery and we know more people are uh, you know, opioid and alcohol use is way up. Uh, you know, marijuana is free everywhere. And, you know, you, you don't have to hide it anywhere. You're at home all day, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. people are finding recovery too. More are finding recovery. And I think some of the barriers that were in place, whether we intended them to be or not, are falling or are away or are different. You know, you and the work you have done and all of the folks involved in secular AA have done have opened it up to so many people who could not access recovery in this particular way, 12-step recovery specifically, was inaccessible to so many people. And I think simply the fact, and you hear this every meeting you, you go to, you know, the fact that secular meetings exist, the fact that it's an open topic, um, that's huge. That opens it to thousands of those people are here now because there wasn't a place for them before. I think also a lot of people are dealing with, um, you know, our deeply entrenched structural stuff within cultures of racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and all of this stuff. When you are behind a screen, there is an ease to, this is just who I am. And this is the name and this is the profile photo you get. Like yeah. I'm not to go in face first and be judged or resisted or um, as I said in something we did the other day, like if as a middle-aged white woman, I come into the meetings and get judged, I assure you people who are dealing with other currents of bigotry are having a hell of a time in those rooms. Yeah, That has always frustrated me. That is always like in the canary in the coal mine theory there, if the white lady's uncomfortable, how does everybody else feel? You know, that worries me, has worried me for a long time. And the Zoom, I think, does allow some access there. In the way it allowed people who loved um, Scandinavian death metal, yeah, you know, wherever they are in the world, they could find each other, right? Uh, yeah. The BIPOC community, yeah. right, uh, have meetings to go to every day now, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, and they don't have to listen to the uh, we're colorblind in AA oh, God, nonsense. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that sort of the way that erases your experience, you know, the way people are like, I don't see you're this. And you're like, that's great. Then you literally don't see the hugest facet of my experience in this world. Yeah. Like, if like, I don't believe in gender. I'm like, enjoy that. Enjoy yeah. sort of like man is a universal word, you know, experience of the world. That's great. That's awesome. That's fine. There are meetings for those folks. Yeah. The nice thing is now there are meetings for the rest of us. For the rest of us, too. Yeah, that's right. And it's also been uh, democratizing for the smaller, newer fellowships. Uh, She Recovers, uh, Refuge Recovery, Smart Recovery, Lifering, um, because, you know, they're just one click away for everybody now, too. 
and we we have time so people are trying out new things and yeah i i think i think that's great i mean too much choice doesn't make for happy consumers necessarily but um, but i i think it's important that uh yeah yeah i think this is a uh, a wonderful time for recovery. It's never been more barrier-free than it is now. But but again, if you're socioeconomically advantaged, then you have like a place like we have somewhere quiet and safe right. to connect. And you've the, seen me, you, I've gave, I, I've you've been at meetings where I was doing service from my car in Rockland, Illinois. You know, I mean, yeah. like that I have cell service is critical, right? When I am without a space physically to be and without cell service, then we have trouble. But I don't feel that it is, I think even economically, if we can get this to people as long as people have cell, you know what I mean? Like, can we get a baseline available? To me, that becomes a question of, do people know it's there? You know what I mean? Like, it isn't, you know, yes, it is hard to get meetings to people experiencing homelessness for sure. Yeah. Um, and who are like in such an economic situation that they cannot access Zoom meetings. I absolutely want to make sure that those meetings are still on the ground. Yeah, so that's right. People need to walk in, literally walk in. I've, I went to meetings for years. There's an Alano here in town that I went to for years. It's actually where I got sober myself. Um, because it's the only place in town where I knew I wouldn't be drunk. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, I couldn't bring a bottle in there. Uh, it just yeah. was and so I'd stay there all day, every day for like the first year of my sobriety. And everybody's like, who is that lady? Well, don't, don't bother her. She's sober. So leave her, you know, over there in the corner in her hoodie. But now those meetings are still really vital. And in those meetings, I saw people like scrounging in their pockets for a dime for seventh tradition. Whereas out in the wealthy suburbs where I've given talks and stuff, people like pass the basket right on by. I'm like, this guy now can't take the bus home. You know that, right? Like, yeah, 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 that's right. Bus money in the yeah. basket because this meeting meant something to him. And you people are passing it by and driving home in your Lexus? Forget it. You know, I know where my meetings are. I know where I belong. You know what I mean? I don't need to learn any more about how privileged people act. I need to learn how people act when the money is down to nothing and life is on the line. That's what mm-hmm. teaches me how to live to this day. The nice thing about Zoom is that I meet more kinds of those people who have mm-hmm. a lot. Of and so like, you know, to the question of being pompous about having been in the rooms a long time, the pomposity isn't really about, oh, I have it and you don't. It's that I have to look harder for the people who have kind of that innate spark that people have when they're under fire. That goes to the kind of the question of the crucible that I was talking about yesterday. When people have been through it, they have something new to teach me all the time. I don't necessarily need to hear all the time about how they had the most exciting crisis ever because we all had the most exciting crisis ever and I get that. But what I need to know is how people got through it. How they got through that crisis, what they did next. And then what they did with the knowledge. That's really where I get excited is like, Mm -hmm. So you went through this experience and then devoted your life to what, you know, like, what did you do with that? Who did you give that back to? And that's, you know, that fundamental premise within AA of give it back is so key, you know, so that's where I learned. Uh, Well, I'm going to end this with, he said what she said. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, we'll have to do this again. I, I think it's great. We get a chance to talk when we've got nothing to talk about. 
I know. I love it. And we say such fun stuff. You do anyway, when you have nothing to talk about. You're a very articulate fellow. And I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Bye for now. So thank you so much. So that's it for now. Uh, but you may have uh, figured there will be more to come. Uh, <laughs> I count four new books to talk about and uh, some poetry. Now she tells me, quote, I don't know if I've done the work I need to do as a poet. As listeners and Maria Hornbacker fans, you can lean on her if you like. She probably has at least a book. After all, she has signed up on the lifelong learning plan of writing. So if the book flops, she can always uh, make it up to us with a second book of poetry. Neither Maria Hornbacker or I are too sentimental, but neither of us realize that our chat you just heard was kind of a 10-year anniversary from the first interview when, as strangers, I interviewed her for TheFix.com about waiting a non-believer's higher power. And we've got more authors coming up on Rebellion Dogs Radio. Beth H. has a book about how to look at the 12-step process for people who don't identify with the Bill Wilson-esque self-centered narcissist uh, personality. What about codependence, underdogs, etc.? Dr. Joe Nowinski, who's been a guest before, has a new book about what now after you leave treatment or rehab, a book to improve outcome rates for long-term sobriety. Dr. Alan Berger, he's got his new book on emotional sobriety out, and I uh, will book some time with him. I've already booked time with Deirdre Sinat. Uh, her latest book, The Third Mrs. Galway, is a historical fiction. It's sort of 1830s anti-abolitionism America, but this fictional tale of America's past has some striking resemblance to social issues today. It's a page-turner, and I can't wait to talk to Deirdre S. next week. And there's uh, more I'm forgetting about, I'm sure. So, uh, speaking of poetry, Amaria, and yes, we would like to see a book of poetry from you. This, uh, I always close with a song, and I like to introduce a new indie act, but this is something uh, I wrote. The music was co-written by another writer in my family, my son. The recording project was called The Chronicles. The EP was Chronic Malcontent from 2005. This is a song called A House is on Fire. Oh, there are a few 12-step winks and nods if you're listening closely. Thanks for listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Show notes and links can be found by Googling Rebellion Dogs Publishing. No one would begrudge this man the neglect of his daily affairs. As his house stood in perdition's flames Goodbye memories and wares This man was haunting the calm As he stared at his life's demise Sharp contrast, premonitions chill My reflection in his eyes A house is on fire, a house is on fire A wind ball for the six o'clock news a house is on fire, a house is on fire To a chorus of primordial ooze Compassion and concern In most of the passers-by Oh my God, how did it happen? What was lost 
Did somebody die? The heretics indulge themselves A victim and perpetrator the same The horror did not shock them They were enchanted by the flames A house is on fire, a house is on fire A wind ball full of six of buckets Seemed widespread. Someone tapped me on the shoulder, and this is what they said. Tragic it is, but you seem sincere. Help if you must, but it's not as it appears. His house has been burning for many a year. His house has been burning for many a Primordial lose. Our house is 